there's a big movement, I think, in modern day to keep things the same. We're going to save this, and we're going to save that, and we're going to save the other, and, and man's going to change it, and man isn't going to change it. It's going to change. And man is where the change needs to occur. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with Lavoie Tolbert, a man of the mountains for 88 years, in particular those around his beloved Fish Lake in Utah. Lavoie's home for 53 years has been Loa, Utah, where he had a rich career as a science teacher in the local middle school. In the 90s, Lavoie was sought out by the therapists and educators involved with wilderness therapy, an approach to meeting the needs and stoking the vitality of youth crushed by addiction, mental illness, and active suicidal ideation. Lavoie then gave years to sharing his unique capacity for introducing these youth to the observable mysteries of the natural world. Time with Lavoie contributed immediately to their healing, confidence, and sense of community. Lavoie is a legend in the wilderness therapy field, a wise and generous man from whom we all have a lot to learn. We got a chance to spend time with Lavoie in his home. After breakfast on Saturday morning, we sat in his kitchen to have this conversation. You'll hear the refrigerator come on, and you'll also hear some good side conversation between longtime friends, Lavoie and Gary Ferguson. Well, and LaVoy, we ought to probably, let's get started on the formal part of this. Do you want some water or anything? Do you... Do I want uh, some? Just to have nearby, or are you good? Mm, no, probably not. Okay. Chocolate? <laughs> Chocolate, maybe. But... Yeah. <laughs> you would start to slur, it's because his mouth's full of chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Well, today on the podcast... I'm getting to spend some time with Lavoy Tolbert here in his home in Loa, Utah. Lavoy, it's so great to see you as ever. Thank you. And it's just thank you for sitting down with me. Here you are in Loa, Utah, and you look out from here on the world all the time. What would you say today? How does it look from here? Well, it's a beautiful day. And I do love it here. I picked this place because of the view and because of the isolation. It's, I have 72 acres here. 
And although I love it a lot, I don't spend a lot of time here. I spend it out in the country around the low area. And when you're out there, what do you see and what are you watching for? Well, I'm looking for anything that just might crop up. I don't really have an agenda as such. I'm out there because there's a, there's a wonderful feeling with it. It's kind of like I'm going home. It's uh, where I came from and I'm going back to. So I just feel like I'm part of it. And I never go into any of this beautiful country around here that I don't imagine what it might have been like for the first people that entered the area and what their life might have been like. Mine's pretty cushy. Right, in a home, <laughs> right, protected yeah. from the weather. When you walk around, though, and with that in mind, do the beings that are out there right now help you understand a little more of what it might have been like back then? Well, I suppose to some degree, but I know that it would be impossible for me. I imagine that the earliest people here were were hunting very big game, something that you couldn't do by yourself. So there were probably family groups that were very well coordinated and uh, everyone's life was on the line, really. I mean, if you're going to take on a woolly mammoth, you're going to have to depend a lot on other people. And so it's, I think there were probably much stronger family ties, and I can't really begin to imagine how important that would be because their livelihood depended upon their success. And they were dr driven to risk their life almost every day, you know. And alone, it would have been their lives. But together, they were able to accomplish some things. So I think family would have been a whole lot different. Mm. I know that you are an educator and that you have formally been, you've been a teacher in the school system, but you've not stopped educating yourself and generously others. When you see and understand these things about family and about how things may have been going back way long ago, what would you want people to today to understand about that? That change is normal and that there's nothing you can really do about it. In fact, you have to kind of move with the punches, I suppose. There's a big movement, I think, in modern day to keep things the same. We're going to save this and we're going to save that and we're going to save the other and, and man's going to change it and man isn't going to change it. It's going to change. And man is where the change needs to occur. What kind of changes? And how? How do we learn to be better at being humans? I wish I had a really good answer for that one. I think 
To me, the perfect person is the person that is constantly seeking truth and who is willing to give up anything that gets in the way of the acceptance of what appears to be truth to you now. But also you'd have to recognize that you thought that what you're giving up now was the truth yesterday. So maybe what you're accepting is the truth today may change tomorrow too. I think you should look forward to that and not resist it or be frightened by it. I think that's what I would tell the world. I think I would also tell the world that uh, differences in people are where their value is, that people are valuable because they're different. If we were all alike and all thought alike, there wouldn't be anything to learn. So we should celebrate that and not uh, fight wars over it. Trying to force people into our way of thinking or dictate to them that they need to be exactly like we are or else we should celebrate the differences. What out in the natural world? I know you worked with, with kids uh, in wilderness therapy who were encountering really challenging situations that were threatening to take their lives in some cases um, from their own behavior, from just circumstances. M my question is, what in the natural world helps us learn these things, shows us that the diversity is our strength, for example? Well, this is an interesting thought because um, out here on the high plateau, um, there's pretty much just black brush and uh, rolling hills and things like that. But every once in a while, there is a, you come across a place that, that has a whole different community of plant life and even different animal life because of the plant life that's there. And, and to me, there's a big lesson in that for humanity, uh, why are those plants growing there and not everywhere? Well, it has to do with just a microclimate that's just there by chance, and yet it favors a certain species. That's kind of what we are as individuals. We're a special uh, climate in an area that wouldn't, where you wouldn't expect that. And it's just kind of a breath of fresh air to happen upon something that's entirely different from all the surroundings of it. And it is absolutely thriving. That's just kind of like a person in a sense, because we're not like anybody else. No other person has ever been that's like we are. We're one of a kind. There will never ever be another. So those are the kind of lessons that I take from nature. They, they apply to all life. And I don't really believe there's um, so-called higher power out there that's regulating these things. I believe that they are because they are.
and it might have just, you know, might just be, it isn't really an accident necessarily, but it isn't foreordained. How did you see that play with these kids out in, in the wilderness for, for therapeutic reasons? How did you see your message that they are absolutely unique and the message that there's nothing really foreordained? How did those help or, you know, what did you see the effect of that on these youth? That's really a hard one because I, I can talk about how I feel and how I see nature out there and how I maybe see myself as being unique also and how I might have a healthy self-image. But I can't tell you that you're a great person and have you believe it. Uh, you have to know that you are a great person or else you can't believe it. So as a teacher, I have to help you find out what it is about you that is unique and makes you very special and valuable. And that's really a difficult task. Uh, sometimes some people just weren't born with much to, to work with. So that's heartbreaking. But there is always something there. If, if you're clever enough and you work hard enough, you can always find something about someone that is unique and makes them valuable that they can love themselves for. Um, but that's tough and sometimes it takes, sometimes you kind of have to be harsh in your discipline and whatnot to get people in that line. So, Do you have a story of, a, of, of, I mean, I'm sure you've got hundreds of stories, <laughs> but something that comes to mind right now that's an illustration of when you got out there and the youth had been out on the land for a while, is there a story of some problem they'd encountered or some insight they'd had and you helped them take it farther by showing them something out in the natural world? The curriculum was designed to use the natural environment as a discipline. All of the uh, rock layers, their ages, the fossils they contain, different landscapes uh, all the way from alpine to desert. It, it forces you as a person in a situation like that to take care of yourself. And you cannot shift the responsibility to someone else. Um, that's how you help people discover the greatness in themselves is to put them in a situation where they um, have to take care of themselves. Yes, I could teach them how to find a dinosaur bone uh, by finding little flakes in a wash and following it up because the flakes came from up. Rain falls, why the little flakes of, of uh, dinosaur bone wash downhill. So if you you go uphill to find the bone and you can track it right to the bone. 
that has a lot of implications. It has to do with every behavior that you have as a person. It comes from somewhere and it leaves tracks and you can trace it back. And maybe it didn't come from a place you're proud of. You might need to get rid of that one. So I tried to put together a curriculum that was, that was real, that was a part of the life of the person that was there. So. So much, it sounds like, came from when you, you listened to the students and then you let the natural world show them what they needed. It wasn't like you came in and you had a bunch of worksheets that they were going to fill out. And it, <laughs> that wasn't your curriculum. Your curriculum was more based in their interests and concerns and needs and what you knew might be helpful. My philosophy is, is that if you're to build self-image, you can't be told that you're great and believe that you, it doesn't happen that way. You have to discover what you're good at and, and then you know that you're really good at it. So, you know, if you're really good um, say, for example, building a Paiute deadfall, let's say. A Paiute deadfall is all mathematics. You, you have a rock that probably weighs 40 pounds or 50 pounds that's being held up by a straw that you could blow on and bend. I mean, you wouldn't expect that. Yeah, Paiute deadfall is to get food, uh, mice or something like that. So all of the uh, activities uh, had to do with uh, what was in nature and what you were actually, it was hands-on. Uh, you're, you're into it. People that never, never know they're good at poetry, for example, uh, discover that they have a they have a talent that they never knew they had. That's that's the aha in in teaching. It's it's not really teaching. And then when you uh, go through a a story like the jumping mouse or a singing stone or something like that, you don't tell people what the story means. You have students interpret the story for you, and. Uh, Pretty soon everyone's participating because everyone has an idea that's different and no one else ever thought of it before. And uh, that's how you build self-image and that's why people were in the programs because they didn't have a self-image. That's why people, <clears throat> that's the whole point of education in my opinion is to build self-image. Is for people to discover how great they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and have a reason to be and to, and to contribute. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. 
I also know um, that you and Gary Ferguson spent some time out in wild nature a long time on an adventure that's documented in Gary's book called Hawk's Rest. And that was kind of adult wilderness therapy in some ways. You were each there and could only succeed if you took responsibility for your part. And at the same time, you were this temporary and very small, but sort of family, making it work in that situation. What, what would you say about that experience? Well, I would say that we were together long enough that it was a, it became a hate or love and appreciation kind of a relationship. We kind of realized that we complemented one another. I never did see in Gary any uh, jealousy over what my talents might be that maybe were a little stronger than his. And I never felt that way about him. I think we were two students on a learning quest that were just really happy to be there and happy to be learning. Tell me a story of something that <laughs> happened that taught you all. Okay. Um, I know this is going to sound really stupid to some degree, but uh, I think perhaps our parting from the experience in the uh, Yellowstone is the one I remember the most uh, because I didn't want it to happen. It was really hard for me to walk one direction from Two Ocean Plateau and have Gary walk the other direction. We'd been together for a lot of weeks. I don't think that's really what your question was entirely, but that's the one that stands out for me the most. Describe the plateau for the listeners. The, the two, what do you call it? Two, uh, two oceans plateau? I think that's what it was called. And it was a place where waters uh, uh, sprang up on, uh, out of uh, one source and ran for a short distance and then divided. It was right on the Continental Divide. And one part of a spring that came from the same source divided and went one direction and the other stream went the other direction and Gary went one direction and I went the other direction. Yeah. And uh, it's just something I've always remembered. Yeah. That it's a natural thing, but it was a hard thing to have happen. It was, anyway, it's an, it's an example of resisting a natural thing. I see. And you two were way, that was way out. You had walked 140 miles with packs to a cabin in the middle of the most remote area in the lower 48 yeah you were I mean, way out there for three months right when we were um we were getting close to our destination and we ran across there was a cow elk and a calf elk and another cow behind her that were uh trotting uh toward us and we knew that they were 
going away from something else and they didn't know we were there and we were thinking wolves. So we concealed ourselves and waited and, uh, and the elk did see us and they turned and went uphill to the right. And um, then we started on down uh, the path after a while, after nothing showed up. We waited for a long time. And after we had gone just a little ways farther, we see this big grizz track in the trail. And we knew that he was right in front of us. We knew then that the elk were running from the, <laughs> running from the smell of the grizz because the wind was right in our face. It was a totally new experience for me because I'd never been in, in grizzly bear country before. And to know that there was a, a God out there that was supreme <laughs> was a little bit spooky. And there were just the two of us. And uh, we knew each other well enough at that time that we knew that neither of us would be deserted by the other. A good feeling. Yes, indeed. Well, then, these days, what is it that excites you most about the natural world and gives you most heart when there's all this talk of, of climate breakdown? Well, I think maybe the word natural is really a, well, it has a lot of meanings. <laughs> um, when I think of natural, I think of something that's not divinely guided or planned and implemented, but but something that is is determined from from not an intelligent uh, design, but from a combination of different elements that are just pure in and of themselves, uh, interacting. It's kind of you know like a tornado, for example. You know, it's a it's very destructive. And yet it's beautiful from a distance if it's not destroying your home or, or something that belongs to someone else. And we look at some of the most traveled and most visited places on earth are where the greatest destruction has occurred. The Grand Canyon, uh, Bryce Canyon, Zion's Capitol Reef, uh, these are all places that are beautiful because of an erosive process. Uh, the land has been uplifted and then it's been rained and snowed on and the wind has blown and it's sculpted all of these really weird looking things that catch our attention and we, we see it as beauty and, and yet it's destruction. All of that just tells me how people blind we are. The people are like that too. They're kind of sculpted from um, a lot of experience that if they look back on it, they would have, they would choose out rather than in. It's all a perspective. Do you think, though, do you think the choice could have been different? Is, is that an illusion? 
that that we had a choice, or is that just the way that nature is unfolding like a tornado? Yes, I think it's an illusion that it's brought on by our own selfishness. I um, Maybe I shouldn't have really used the word selfish because um, if you weren't concerned about yourself, <laughs> I think that's, I think that's the, I think it's the right thing to be concerned about yourself. And um, I think you should t treat yourself with the utmost respect. I think what I'm trying to get at here is we have expectations that we would like the world to conform to our comfort and pleasure rather than looking at the world as a teacher, uh, a disciplinarian, where we can where we can look and see what what nature and in quotation marks has actually done for us. We're just here for a short time. And we humans are really <laughs> part of what's going on. I wonder if there's something that comes to mind right now that is a piece of advice that you would like to give to listeners as we all walk forward into this uncertainty that is just what is. What would be your piece of advice for today? Um, be respectful of one another and differences. Don't separate people by cultures or races or sex or other things. We have a lot to do with who we become, but we don't have everything to do with what we become. We, we have hereditary gifts and we have hereditary curses that we are just given, so to speak. We didn't earn and we didn't deserve as punishment. Uh, just recognize that and be a learner. Just be a learner. Be a learner and you'll be a perfect person. A learner is a person that is willing to give up anything you think you know now when you find enough truths that establishes the likelihood that you've been on the wrong path and be willing to change and, and say I was wrong and now I think I'm right. I think you, my own opinion, is that you should champion what you think is truth, uh, knowing that you may have to eat crow down the road, but at least you'll be an active person and not a piece of dead wood. I think you need to do that. Anyway, that's the way I try to live my life. I'm imperfect in it, but that's what I try to do. Well, I thank you for this time, and I think it's time for us to get out on the plateau here, huh? It's been, it's been fun for me. I always like to tote my philosophy. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Really, thanks, Lavoie. It's, it's wonderful well, to welcome, be able to Mary. hear from you. Yeah. Appreciate you. Yeah, likewise. You can learn more about Lavoie by reading Gary Ferguson's books, Shouting at the Sky, an up-close rendering of three months in the high deserts of Arizona with youth experiencing wilderness therapy, and his book, Hawk's Rest, the story of the summer Gary and Lavoie spent in the most remote section 
of the Yellowstone ecosystem. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca. Music by Alexi Demray and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.